there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to this week's episode of the podcast, and I'm delighted to have you along. Again, going out on a Thursday, I moved it from Friday a couple of weeks ago back to Thursday, just give that extra day before the weekend hits, and maybe you can get a chance to listen to it on the Thursday or the Friday. So effectively, Thursday is a new Friday and we will go with that for the next while. So in this week's intro, I just want to touch on Martin Brennan's episode. Again, as I always say, I encourage you to go back and check it out after this episode if you haven't listened to Martin already. He is a very inspiring and knowledgeable man with years of experience in the areas of development and coaching. I took a lot out of it, some really good tips and takeaways that uh, I've written down and will continue to draw upon. I probably got more feedback from that episode than I have for a long time in relation to just the the conversation, how it went, and that was really cool and uh, it was nice to hear people enjoyed it. And all sorts of feedback that comes back that helps me grow and develop. It's not all good by any means, but it's constructive and I, that, that is important too and I take it on board and hopefully can implement it as we go and i appreciate it just a couple of other updates my one minute monday idea concept is into its sixth one minute monday and this week i had bb baskin on who is a very well-known tv personality radio hotelier now a motivational speaker from ireland and she gave the one minute tip this week very well received she's a big following on twitter and i was delighted to have her on so that went down well and hopefully we'll have more guest contributors in the future i do have a number of one minute tips that i want to share over the next number of weeks so i'll mix and switch and change that up as we go but it is uh, enjoyable so check it out it's on the website on the video link go to that love if you did last week i did put a call out around a solo show that i hope to do where i'm answering a bunch of questions that come in from guests or listeners mainly listeners not just guests I am collating those. I have a few in already and I will absolutely do that in another couple of weeks. So if you have a question in mind, pause right now, write it down, email it to me, send it on Twitter or any of the other socials and I'd be delighted to answer it. It can be anything technical related to the podcast, things I've learned, whatever. I just want to share that if you're interested. If not, that's cool too, but I will put it out. One other thing I started to do is release the episode a few days earlier on the patreon page where you can go and listen to this episode without the intro some people might want that um and get that a few days earlier and i hope to start doing more and more of that and adding more content as well i have a lot of episodes recorded and it's only fair that i get them out in a sequence to the people that i recorded them to but hopefully i'll be adding some more conversations that i have maybe just on patreon over the next while so check that out i'd love to have you as a subscriber okay on to this week's episode and it is with madeleine black so madeleine connected with me just after the josh quigley episode actually about a month or so back she had been videoed for a promotion i think around her book that we talk about unbroken or maybe before that and josh had recorded a video with the same producer so there was a connection there and we started to talk about her story And I quickly realized that this would be a story that would be more than worth sharing on the podcast because it is a very important area to discuss and something that I think from Madeline's experience of sharing her story has helped many people. So again, the goal here is to help others 
that may have had some challenges or adversity in their own lives. So Madeleine released her debut book, Unbroken, just last year. And in it, she talks about a gang rape that she endured back in the late 70s. She was only 13 years at the time. And for years and years afterwards, this obviously had a huge impact on her self-esteem, her outlook on life. Everything was impacted as a result, and she tried to bury those memories. The story is certainly about suffering, pain and trauma. But also, as you'll hear, it's about compassion, forgiveness, healing, recovery and hope. It's certainly a very important episode and one I was very keen to share. And again, all I can say is I appreciate madeleine's time to come onto the show and go through her story with me and now with you guys so there's more details of this episode on the show notes there's some book recommendations that uh, we talk about as well towards the end and obviously we have a link to madeleine's book as well as other ways to get in touch with her so that's pretty much the intro guys this is a very important episode as i said I hope you enjoy it. I hope you take something positive from it. And I shall hand it over to Madeleine Black. Thank you and enjoy. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the 1% Better podcast. And this one is with Madeleine Black. Madeleine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and tell your story. We were connected as a result, I guess, of the the episode I had released just a couple of weeks ago. I suppose when I'm releasing this, it'll be a while ago with uh, Josh Quigley. He is somebody I suppose you're aware of yourself. Yeah, we've actually both been filmed by a filmmaker that I know called Kathleen Little. So she filmed a little film of Josh and she's made one of me as well. So we have connected, but we've never really met, but we know of each other. <laughs> the Josh episode was great in that a lot of new people have connected with me as a result of sharing his story. And that's really positive in that I love meeting and talking to new people, new potential guests. And I suppose that's where we're, we're at right now. I'm really interested in hearing your story. I know about a year ago, roughly around a year ago, you released a book called Unbroken, One Woman's Journey to Rebuild a Life Shattered by Violence. Maybe just even in a nutshell, talk a little bit about what the last year has been like since you released the book. It's been a very busy year, actually. Um, it's, doors have opened in ways that I never really thought you know, would happen. I, I first shared my story about three and a half years ago, and I've just become... I, suppose an accidental activist or an accidental public speaker never really planned to do all the talks and everything that I am doing now yeah so it's been a, a busy year and I know as, at the point of recording this you're going to be in Cork um, to, to do another speech and a radio show and potentially be in the paper as well so I guess it's key to to talk about the book and mm-hmm. we can certainly go into the, the details there in the episodes I normally like to bring it right back into the guest's journey and and one of the first things even before we talk maybe about the event that transpired what was life like for you growing up earliest memories were you a happy-go-lucky kid just just to get a bit of perspective of what you were like before that I guess I was a normal kind of child I'm one of five I'm in the middle I was quite shy quite naive uh, quiet you know just normal my mum wasn't well for a few years so she was bedridden um, for a couple of years but you know normal kind of busy family life 
Right, normal busy family. Do you have do you have any kind of early memories? Is there anything that stands out when you were growing up that sticks with you? Yeah, we always had animals. My mum loves animals, and so we, there were five kids and five dogs. <laughs> and she went on many years later to have an animal sanctuary. So we always had guinea pigs, gerbils, mice rabbits everything we had all sorts you were in a good place yeah there was the element of concern you know my mum wasn't too well but apart from that it was it was okay yeah okay very good so the story i suppose begins in in the book in london in the late 70s when Mm -hmm. the the event happened conscious of even not sure what to call it what to talk about it but i guess maybe if you want to take it over and maybe talk us through the the story so I'm, I'm okay to name it, it's fine with yeah. me. So my story starts in the late 1970s when I was gang raped by two American teenagers and I was 13 years old. Okay. The events that happened around that day, the, if you want to talk through, through that and maybe just for the listeners who mightn't have uh, much of a perspective on it, if you could go through that. Sure. So it happened very easily, you know, a girlfriend and I decided to come up with a plan to have a night out and we decided to buy some alcohol go and meet some boys i don't know how we convinced the off license that we were old enough but we managed to buy vodka which we drank in a local cafe mixed with orange juice under our table and i got very drunk (laughs) very quickly i'd never drunk before and these two young men took us back to her mum's empty flat which is not where we were meant to be staying we lied about where we were staying And it became very clear very early on that they weren't there to put me to bed and let me sleep off the drink, that they were there for something else. And Mm. when I started to fight back, the violence just escalated. Right. Yeah, like it is a it's a a shocking situation to be in. And when I I suppose read through some of the articles that came out around the time of the book, you mentioned during the event uh, that you became aware of a of a young Tibetan monk, a kind of an image of, of that. Can you talk through, through how all that came about? Uh, well, you know, I don't really know how to explain the presence of the monk. This is only my understanding. Mm. I think it's because I came so close to being killed because they really made about three attempts to kill me that night that I was just taken to another dimension in life. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone listening, but I think I was really shown maybe what goes on that we don't normally see i was obviously very protected by whoever appeared by my side but i didn't actually remember him from the night it was many many years later because i cut off so many memories and Mm. feelings and emotions but when my oldest daughter turned 13 all my memories came flooding back in the forms of nightmares and flashbacks and pictures and then i also started to see this young monk and I thought I really am going mad now but Mm. the more I denied all of the memories they would come back faster and the more I denied his presence you know he would appear to me as well so I had to find a way to accept both if I didn't accept him you know I had to accept all the details I had to accept all of it as as how it happened so yeah it might not make sense to most people but it doesn't really make that much sense to me as well why he appeared by my side and in the reflection you've done on it, has anything else come to you as to why it was a Tibetan monk? Was there anything in your subconscious even at that time or subsequently that ties to Buddhism? Is there an interest in that area or is it just completely unexplained? Unexplained. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I have studied psychotherapy and it is based on a lot of Buddhist teaching. But uh, at that time in my life, at 13, no, I wouldn't really known about mm. Buddhist monks. It wouldn't have been part of my consciousness at all. 
Hmm. It's in, it's interesting. Uh, just the, the image or the symbolism that that came up was there's something in there that you weren't aware of, but maybe as you said, there's um higher higher powers. At this was at the time or even subsequently. Have you been spiritual or religious, or is there anything connected to anything in that area? I'm not really religious. I'm really practice it in a, in a big way and uh you know spiritual i don't really know what spiritual means <laughs> you know i'd rather just uh live my life i don't really believe in spirituality i just want to be the best kind of human being that i can be so i think i believe more in humanity than spirituality okay. being the best version of me that i can be okay very good i can hear the dog barking in the background there that's okay <laughs> yeah. Sorry, he appears in quite a few podcasts that I do. <laughs> He's a popular dog. No, that's fine. He is. So maybe just after the event then that happened, it was something that you and your, your friend completely blocked out. You, you kind of parked mm-hmm. it. Was that something you both agreed to say, that we can't talk about this at all? Was it just a, a you natural know, I don't instinct? really re- even remember making that agreement, but I, maybe it was just a, a known thing between us with no words that we weren't going to speak about it. Because from my point of view, I can't answer for her. I just thought, well, we lied about where we were staying. I was meant to be at her grandma's and not her mum's empty flat. Her mum was away. Mm. I'd also been drinking. And, you know, I just thought I would get into trouble. And I had blocked off so many uh, of the memories that it was really hard for me to remember all the details then. But I know now what we don't speak about, it really leaks out of us. And it leaked out of me in many, many different ways. Yeah, and as I said, you were only at the age of 13 and... I know from reading you've gone down the route of doing therapy and psychotherapy in your own life you were probably only very much forming your own value set and views of the world at that time you decided to block that out or I don't know if it was a decision I don't don't think it was even a conscious thing I think it was just the trauma is too much for us so we just shut it out you know we're able to shut that part of us down Mm. and then in the weeks and months and years directly afterwards how 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 did that impact how you lived i guess you know what what were the how did that manifest for you afterwards well i can see now that i was just doing anything i could to numb out so i um, i became anorexic so it was easier to focus on what i wasn't eating than to focus on what was going on inside i uh turned to drugs i used alcohol I had many fears, many phobias. My opinion of myself was so low. You know, I just thought I was worthless, dirty, contaminated. Um, I attempted suicide. I ended up in a children's psychiatric ward for eight weeks. Mm. So, yeah, it manifested in many different ways. And really, it was my my mindset. I just really didn't see the point of being alive. I didn't understand the point of myself. Wow. Yeah, that's it's, it's crazily tough. When you said you were in... in psychiatric wards for for eight weeks there i I know at this point you hadn't told your parents of what had happened i think you were you were too scared of of admitting it and probably because of not only just admitting it and seeing their reaction but in case i think you said in case though the 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 americans that did the, the 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 crimes would have come back and looked for you you were petrified of that Yeah, because one of the last things they said to me as they held the knife against my throat was if I tell anyone that they would kill me and I believed them, you know, after what they were capable of doing, I believed that they could do that to me. Hmm. What did your parents think was wrong when you tried to, when you did took the overdose and 
for those well, eight I weeks? Think it, as I said in the start, my mum was unwell and I had right. already been in hospital when I was 11 um, because I had epilepsy and they think it was brought on by the stress of her being unwell. So they okay. just thought I maybe wasn't coping with that. And when I went back into hospital, we met with the same psychologist that I met when I was 11 years old and he just carried on where he left off and I just think now it was lazy medicine he just made assumptions that it was the same issue and interestingly when I wrote my book I applied for my hospital notes because I really wanted to see if they had any idea of the trauma of what was going on because nobody ever asked me the question in hospital you know what had happened to you and uh, they had no idea in my notes so they just thought it was down to my mother's uh, ill health and they were worried about my depression my anorexia but they never really got down to what was behind it Hmm. but it was it was for you it was very clear though was it or were you even burying that well, yeah, I think at then that stage I was burying it. I kind of knew, but I didn't really name it as what I thought it was. And yeah, it's amazing how we can numb out and deny things. You know, the power of denial is so strong. And also that the shame is so hard. You know, I thought if people knew that they would feel the same way about me that I felt, that they would be disgusted as if, you know, in some way it was mm. a reflection of me and I couldn't. It's a shame it's so hard to walk through. It's just uh, crippling. Yeah. No, shame. Like, And I suppose that becomes, it's like a lot of things, the, the more you let it build up in your mind, the bigger and bigger it becomes. Mm-hmm. And obviously Absolutely. this is a huge um, incident and, and the shame piece, even though when you maybe sit objectively and hear somebody else talking about it on TV or hear something similar happen, you would feel so sorry for them as opposed to being the shame piece wouldn't come up so mm-hmm. yeah that's um that's so tough the, the part then you mentioned at 16 you left a note on your pillow as you went to school that's how your mom found out the, i suppose the mm-hmm. approach you took there was that like planful or just was it it came to a head or, or what i'd love to hear a bit about yeah, that yeah i think at that stage my behavior was really rebellious you know they would say stay in so i would go out and don't drink so i would drink you know all the things that mm. looked like i was just a rebellious teenager and i stayed out all one night my mom told me not to stay out and when i came in in the morning she said don't you know what could happen to you? so inside my head i'm shouting the words but i couldn't find my actual voice so i just left this note on my pillow mm. and when i came home they questioned me about it and they called the other girl and and she said no I've got it wrong they wouldn't have done that they were nice boys Uh, you know they were sons of diplomats they just took us home and that was it and uh, I just thought gosh it took me all that time to find my voice and then I just felt I wasn't believed and that just sent me off into a deeper downward spiral I have to say god yeah so so like even at that after that your, your friend came back and said that it wasn't that at all was it then something that your parents just kind of told you to forget about that that didn't happen or did the dialogue no, but my continue my dad did want to go to the police and my mum was insisting that we couldn't go to the police and my mum was very quiet and it took me many many years to understand her silence i discovered later on that she had also been raped as a God. neighbor and uh, my father never knew they had five children i don't know how she ever 
got on with her life with no support, no counselling, nothing. Yeah. And uh, they discovered that this man was also raping his daughters. So he was charged. He went to prison. And my grandparents, they moved while he was in prison. And they never spoke about it again. So when I was talking about what was happening to me, obviously you can understand now, it was bringing up all my mum's trauma. And mm. because my dad didn't know, it was a shame that silenced her. She couldn't find her voice to say, you know, if she goes to the police that they will examine her or this is what happened to her. I know now that they wouldn't have examined me because it was three years later. But, uh, yeah, it brought up a lot of fear for her when I was saying what had happened. Oh, that's a coincidence of, of crazy proportions, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's not really a coincidence because I know that my story is the story of many women and many men. Sadly, you know, mm. it's uh, common. It's not it's right. not unusual what has happened to me. Yes, maybe to the level of violence, but rape, stranger date rape is unusual. Most women or men will know they're rapists. You know, a lot mm. of it happens within marriages, within dates. It's 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 a common global issue. Just to move it forward a little bit, you were 17 and then you decided or your parents decided that it was an opportunity for you to, to travel or to move away, to maybe get away from your environment? Yeah, to get away from all the bad influences because they discovered that I was smoking a lot of dope and they called right. all my friends' parents and told all of them, which obviously didn't go down too well. Right. And by that point, none of my friends were really speaking to me because they all got into trouble. So I just thought, you know, what have I got to lose? <laughs> I'll go away. Hmm. So I went to Israel for a year and I worked on the kibbutz for six months and then I worked in a town called Ashkelon as well for six months. Right. And it was there where you met your, your now husband? It is, yes. I met him 35 years ago <laughs> when I was 17. Love at first sight, I would imagine. Well, so. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know then, but I did feel that I could trust him and I felt safe with him because uh, I hadn't felt that with many people at all. Right. And was he, did you confide in him early on about what had happened? When did he Not become... Yeah. Not instantly, I don't think, but it was when I realised it was becoming serious and then we talked about marriage and I had to say to him, look, I, I would never have children. In my mind, the thought of giving birth was going to be too much like being raped again. And, hmm. and he was fine to start with. And every now and again, he would ask me the question. And I can remember the exact moment we were away on a beach in Thailand because we used to save all our annual leave and travel every winter for a month or so. Right. And he went to ask me the question again, and I was all ready for my usual answer. But something came in, and I just thought, you know, if I never become a mum or have children, these two young men will still be having power and control over me. And I didn't want them to have that control over my life anymore. And then I really came up with a plan that I call my best revenge, which would be that I would have children and I would just live my life as well as I could almost, you know, to refuse to be defined by what had happened to me. Okay. And at what point did did you come up with that best revenge idea? How, how long after you met your husband? Was it a number of years later? It was, it maybe um, like three years after, about eight years okay. after we'd met, because then it took me a couple of years to have some counselling and get my head in a good space to right. be able to have kids as well. Okay, and and do you see the the meeting of your husband as the turning point, or was it shortly afterwards when you started to get counselling that you? Yeah, that? I think meeting him because at that point I still felt pretty worthless and mm. useless and pointless, and I would drive the poor man mad. I would say, "What is it about me that you love? How can you possibly want to be with someone like me?" And and he was just very steady and grounded, and he just said, "You know, I just do," and I 
over time, I saw with his consistency that I was lovable and I was able to give love back in return. And that that changed so much because I was so, um, you know, full of hate for myself and for other people and suspicions and paranoia and all mm. the rest of it. So, yeah, love, I think, is always going to win. Brilliant. Well, that's that's good. Lovely to hear. Um, obviously, he helped with your confidence, your self-esteem started to build and, and the fact that you could start trusting him was probably a, a step forward as well you mentioned counseling at what point did you start going for proper counseling to kind of work through that yeah i think when we were away in thailand i was you know determined then to become a mum. so as soon as i came back i started to research the right person for me and i went through a few <laughs> i have three children so i've got past that fear and that phobia and I really thought that that was it. I thought I was healed and it was all done. Right. And then, as you said, until when was it your first daughter when she hit 13 that yes, all of this came yes. back? Yes. So uh, trauma is very interesting. You know, it has a way of resurfacing when we least expect it. But when I look back now, there were a combination of events and it was always going to come back. So I was doing a lot of personal development workshops and I was studying psychotherapy, which also, you know, challenges you personally as well. Mm. And Anna turned 13 and like I said before, all these memories, all these nightmares, all these flashbacks just came back in the day and in the night. And I would actively try not to get to sleep because I knew I would have a nightmare. So I was existing on like one or two hours sleep. So I was just a mess. And I couldn't understand, you know, why, if it was so bad, then why didn't I remember it? And it's only mm. now that I realize it's because it was so bad. That's why I didn't remember it. And as I said earlier, it was my denial of the memories that was actually now causing me more distress. I just, it was like a porn film running through my head and I didn't want to remember it. Right. But the more I denied it, the more I would get all the memories coming back. So eventually, after about three years of going to therapy, I had to find a way to think, you know what? They didn't kill me. I am still alive. I am okay. It's not happening anymore. And they are just pictures. But, you know, we have mm. to really work the memories because the pictures they do contain energy and they're very reactive and I was getting reacting you know activated all the time by watching these memories but after a while you know I could work them so much that the sting kind of left all the memories all the energy had left if that makes sense no absolutely um I think I've done kind of counseling it myself and just talking to others that have you can almost remember the memories or, or change them Absolutely. using certain certain techniques do you think the your own tr journey of going down to do psychotherapy and kind of get into the area of therapy was a, a, a catalyst for you to kind of rework and reimagine and, and address yeah, a lot i of don't know whether it would have come back anyway but my course was based on a lot of personal development and it was very full on it was very challenging it was very experiential so yes it was always going to come back at some point but that definitely did trigger it yeah definitely brings it up and and do you think one of the other things i was just thinking and reflecting on before we, we talked is that you know you ask sometimes i ask guests is there things you regret or is there a thing that you could have done differently 10 years ago or whatever i find through my own journey everything i've done i don't regret anything in that I just w say I wasn't ready to make a change 10 years ago that uh, I was five years later that has got me onto the right path. So I think things are happening 
as almost they should do. Would, does that kind of make sense with you in that? You... Yeah, you, I think it's all about timing. I couldn't have done the work that I did 10, 12 years ago, 20 years ago. I wouldn't yeah. have been in a steady place for it. I would have been too caught by my trauma. And, and, you know, it's funny how we really think we're doing okay. And it's only when we look back many years later that we think I really wasn't okay at all. And it's only now when I look back, I think, yeah. gosh, I just about was holding it together. I remember going uh, to train as a volunteer at Rape Crisis and in the training we were doing the side effects that a woman may feel if she's been raped and I could go through the list and I thought, oh my gosh, I've had that, I've had that, I've had that and it was only mm. then that I realised I lived with post-traumatic stress disorder for years, undiagnosed and I had no idea why I, why I jumped to every sound I heard, why I could burst into tears, why I was paranoid about my safety or hated the dark, you know, my mm. distrust of men being out of control. All of it was linked to PTSD and I never made that connection. Yeah. It's it's um it's eye opening when you do then understand why, uh and, and it makes so much sense. Do you it think the, the journey you've gone through obviously makes you puts you in a very strong position to be able to help others as a result, right? So would that make sense? It does make sense. You know, I, um, when I first shared my story, it went public on a website called The Forgiveness Project. And our founder, Marina, always refers to us as story healers rather than storytellers. And I have felt that so many times since I've shared my story, you know, whether it's been written down in my book or on a blog or when I'm speaking or TV, radio interviews. So many people every day, I still get messages, get in contact of how, you know, me speaking has helped them. But it was someone else speaking that actually helped me to find my voice. And I know that since I've spoken, I've helped other people and they will then help other people. So it is really a ripple effect. Yeah, de definitely. At what point it was back, is it 2014 when you came to terms with the trauma, you decided to share the story publicly for I the did, first time? Yeah. And Marina said to me, you know, you don't need to put your photo up. You don't need to put your name. Mm. But I had recently been chatting to another woman who was going to prison to meet the man, a serial rapist who had broken into her home and raped her. And I thought, gosh, if she could do that, I, I can share my picture and my name. I don't want to be ashamed anymore. I don't want to hide and have this thing that's like a sordid, dirty secret. I've got nothing to be ashamed about. I realized that the shame... Actually, it never belonged to me. It always belonged to the perpetrator. And for years, I'd been hanging on to this inappropriate shame. And I realized the only way for me to work my shame was to step into it. When I was hiding away, it actually just magnified it. And the more I speak out, it's just it's shattered all of my shame. I, I have nothing to be ashamed about at all. Hmm. And did that, the classic question is, how did it make you feel as you started to do it? Were you extremely nervous, scared to the point just before telling the story and then did that flip very quickly did was there a huge release the very first time when she told me it was going to go up on their website and i could share the link on facebook i was very hesitant <laughs> pressing the send button i have to be honest yeah. and then you know because a lot of my friends maybe knew or they or a lot of them maybe didn't know that it was near fatal or mm. other people didn't know all the details and here i was exposing myself and it was quite diluted what we put on the forgiveness project but there were still some details but you know from day one, I've had so much support and I've had so much uh, love. You know, it just it's been amazing the support that I've got. And I also, not just the support, I know what it does for other people. 
So amazingly, when I'm asked to speak, don't ever tell anyone that hires me. I never prepare what I'm going to say. Mm. I just really trust that the words will come and the words have always come. I never feel nervous because I think now it's not about me anymore. It's what it can do for other people, which is why I do share my story, because I want to break down the, the shame and the stigma and the silence, which I know are the hardest things to get through. But finding my voice has also been the most vital empowering thing powerful thing that i've ever ever done and it's uh it's not only strengthening me i know it helps other people as well absolutely absolutely and as you said to the point of never preparing and just telling mm -hmm. it it is your truth it is your story yep. and i suppose when when it is that no matter what that is um it's going to be authentic and it's going to yeah. come across genuine so yeah brilliant mm. to you for, for doing that as you were working through the trauma and conscious of a couple of uh, thoughts that come up the exercises that you used or techniques is there any ones mm -hmm. that stand out and probably through your own journey uh, in therapy and a psychotherapist that you would that you use that you found particularly beneficial or, yeah. or worked well yeah i'm very lucky that i had access to many different types of therapies i know i'm very fortunate that i could afford to pay for a lot of them which people might not be able to but the talking therapy definitely helped but i was also introduced to therapeutic massage which is yeah really it's a very different type of massage it's not a sports massage because all the trauma is held in our cells and i wasn't really sure and when i went the very first time you know i could hear this person screaming and shouting and kicking and crying and i thought oh my gosh who's making all that noise and then i realized it was coming from me God. <laughs> and i and i just thought it was it was so powerful that like, you know one session was like five ten psychotherapy sessions it just moved all that trapped trauma that's held in our body so body work for me was really important because on the night that it happened I very much was aware of leaving my body mm. and so my journey has always been about getting back in and remembering all the memories because I never felt that I was occupying all of my body it felt like I had a house but it wasn't furnished you know it was like right. an empty space inside of me so I've always just tried to get back in my body whatever it would take. So I've done the therapeutic massage. I did um, transformational breath work, which was also getting right back into my body, but that really helped. Mm. I did drumming. You know, I've just done so many different things. I went to sweat lodges and just loads of things to really ground me, to get me back in. Right. Meditation, is that something that's kind of intertwined with a lot of that? Or is that something? Well, there, there, there has been. I don't, I don't meditate every day, but mm. the, you know, I guess all of these things are a way to connect ourselves, and it's, it's the disconnect that leaves us caught in our trauma. When we're really connected and grounded in, that can help us to stay steady with whatever comes our way. So it was learning to get back in and connect to myself, whatever that took. Mm. And through that experience, that kind of picked up on it a few times when you bottle down and bottle away these feelings and emotions and memories mm -hmm. they remain inside you until at at some point down the road you kind of have to face them you have to almost get them out of you or, or come to terms with them is that mm -hmm. is that a, a well i chose to i guess we never have to yeah. but if we don't do it then i just thought it's gonna i'm just gonna keep running from this all sure. my life it's gonna chase me forever until i finally deal with it yeah rather than run away run run towards it and kind of em embrace or, or, or face it is that the, the the general 
consensus or is that ge the general learning you've gained during the, the counselling is that it's always going to be there unless you actually face up to it and and there's no other way of getting rid of it. Yeah, but I think for me, the way in was the way out. You know, when, when all the memories started to come back, I went to see a counsellor, a therapist, and I wanted him to make the memories stop. I wanted him to make them go away. I wasn't a very good client. Mm. And then I quickly realised, actually, that wasn't what was going to help. It was actually facing the memories was going to be the thing that I had to do. And that was, I have to say, one of the hardest things that I've had to do, but the most beneficial, because as I explained it deactivated all that energy that was associated with all the pictures, you know, all the, mm. the sting, all the activative parts just have now diluted. Yeah. Okay. So the book, when did you decide that you were going to write the full story and uh, what was your approach around putting that together? Well, I was advised to... Um, in about, let me have a think, 2010 to write down what had happened that night by a teacher that I'd been going to for many years. Right. And uh, at first of all, I thought, there's no way, there's no way I can let anybody read that, let alone you or anyone else. Right. But I would stop and start it. And then one night, about four years after he asked me, all the words just came out in, in a wonder. It's like my hands were on automatic. Hmm. And what I've edited is what then appears on the Forgiveness Project. Marina saw that. And then I went to see a speaker from the Forgiveness Project, a woman called Marion Partington. And most of the events were in London. And this one happened to be in Glasgow, about two minutes from where I live. And I went to see her speak. And I just saw the effect that she had on the room that night. And I really then again understood what Marina meant by story healers. And I just thought, you know, I could share my story too. I could maybe write a book. She had written a book. And that night, the same thing started to happen. At nighttime, I would just see the words just going round and round my head. I couldn't get to sleep. And the next morning, I would sit down at my computer and all the words would just come out, you know. So I really just feel like I was a typewriter. And in about eight weeks, I had written 70,000 words. Wow. Yeah. And by doing it, did you feel that it was another part of the process of healing? And It was, actually. It was very good to put it all down on paper. And I don't think I really intended it to be a book. I thought, I'm just going to write it all down for me mm. and just see, you know, if I can just get it all out and put it all down on paper. And, yeah, actually, it was very good to see it all written down. Yeah, very, very good. And... As you said, it's been a year since it's come out and the last 12 months have been pretty, pretty hectic. Do you still have bad days? Do you still have days where you feel things are getting in on you? And if so, no, I, I, I would say I don't. You don't. <laughs> you know, okay. One of the things that happened to me in therapy when I, I was going, when my daughter turned 13, is something that I didn't expect. My therapist towards the end of the three years suggested to me that maybe these two young men weren't born rapist and at first I was completely outraged by what he was saying to me but he planted a seed in my head and it started to grow and I really wanted to understand what had conditioned these two young men so much that they made that decision that night you know how did they know to be so violent what had they seen heard or experienced themselves and when I really took that on board I actually started to surprising myself felt compassion towards them and I found myself forgiving them and I never ever will forgive the act of rape because it is a total violation but I could forgive them in their 
mistakes as a human being that they made that night. And I realized that in their dehumanizing of me, that they really were dehumanizing themselves. And how connected were they into their their being, their source, their light, whatever you want to call it? You know, I just thought they must be in a really bad space to be able to do that to another person. And the forgiveness just allowed me to let go of all the hurt, all the anger, all the rage, and it just brought in peace. And life is just much easier. Well, that's great. And I guess on an ongoing, on a daily basis, do you have affirmations? Do you use things to continually keep you in a in a positive place? Is there anything you do or? I don't really, but I think, you know, it sounds maybe quite dramatic, but when your life is nearly taken away from you, it's now made me so grateful to be alive. I realized, I, you know, so many women and men are raped and then murdered, and I was so close to it that night that I just think they've actually taught me to really appreciate life. You know, they've showed me that there's so much more going on, and, and one of them really stopped the worst one from killing me at the very end. So I have to be grateful towards him as well, but... To really see what I have in life, you know, I I just think life is for living. I love my life. Wow, yeah, no, that's brilliant. That you know, obviously, in 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 a situation that was so bad that you can turn it around and and you know take the positives out of it. So that's a yeah. really good message. Yeah, well, I, I saw that I really had a choice that I could really accept all that was done to me and learn to let it go, or I could stay caught in my hatred and my anger and my revenge. And I thought, well, I struggled so long to have children. What would be the point of bringing them into this world if I just then uh, projected all my anger and fear onto them? So I just thought for them, for me, for my husband, you know, the two young men would have no idea if I held on to all this anger. It was only poisoning me. So I just thought really that it's not what happens to us that is important. It's what we do with what happens to us. And if we choose to, we can learn to get past anything in life. That's a great message to, to share. We're coming near the, near the end of the story, but it, it's a positive place you're in now. And, and that's brilliant. What does the future hold? What is you know on the horizon for you? Where's the next step of your journey? You know what? I've never really planned any of it so far. So okay. um, all the talks, all the stuff that I've done, people just approach me and come to me. So I'm very much just allowing myself just to be exactly where I'm meant to be. I just trust life will be guiding me and leading me. And so far, it's, it's done a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And I'm delighted that it led you to this conversation with me. I normally end with a couple of questions around um, just kind of rapid fire enough ones. But one is, mm -hmm. a, a I love asking my guests about a, a book that they would recommend. And obviously, Unbroken is, is certainly mm -hmm. one that we would be obviously recommending. Obviously, we would recommend that one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a given. And I will definitely put links to that in, in the notes on the, um, on the show at the end on the website. Mm -hmm. Is there any other book or anything you've kind of consumed that has really been impactful to you in your yeah, own journey there's, there's been a, a well a few books one book that i always loved as a child and i've read it again many times as an adult is the diary of anne frank because mm. whatever she went through she still had the ability to see the good in people and that always stayed with me okay. and another one that always had a huge impact on me was um, maya angelou I know why the cage bird sings because I didn't know then that people could write or talk about childhood rape. I didn't know that mm. that was possible. And she also just gave me so much hope and courage. And, you know, it just really, I've never forgotten that book. Wow. Okay. That's, that's great to, to get a couple there. The second one I heard of Maya Angelou, I wasn't, um, 
I didn't know the book, but uh, I'll... yes, there's about five books in her memoir and her biographies. And my book starts with a quote by her. I'm very influenced by her, and it says that um, whilst I may be changed by what happens to me, I refuse to be reduced by it. And I've always just loved that. <laughs> wow! Yeah, brilliant. Um, I'll certainly include that in the, the notes as well. I like asking people that I talk with advice is there a piece of advice that has stood out with you or a piece that you'd like to to pass forward anything come to mind yeah i would just say to people out there if they've ever experienced any rape sexual harassment abuse that you know it's never ever too late to find your voice it's never too late to go and get help to um keep that shame inside is only going to hurt you and it's the thing you can do that will really help is to give it oxygen to release that shame by speaking about it to find someone that you trust it will be so beneficial to really be listened to to be heard and to be believed there's nothing more powerful no that's a it's a great way to end it and i hope uh, through through your story that uh, people that listen get certainly take something very positive away from it and yeah if they feel there's something buried in themselves that they wanted to share you know it'd be brilliant if uh if this helped them do that for sure so madeleine thanks so much just before we wrap up how can people connect in with you or, or follow you or learn more about you Yes, I am on all over the place. So I have a website, madeleineblack.co.uk. I'm on Twitter, which is madblack65. On Instagram, which is also madblack65. On LinkedIn, Madeleine Black. And on Facebook, I have a public page, which is Madeleine Black Unbroken. Okay, I will promise to put all those links in there as well so okay. people can find <laughs> it easier. Um, and look, that's been really, really excellent for you to come on and share the story i, I really appreciate it and um, you're very welcome i certainly have i don't know, enjoyed listening to it uh listening is is so important and and taking stuff from that that uh, can only be of, of benefit so so thanks so much and um best of luck on your trip to cork i know you're going to be Thank here you. um obviously by the time i put this out it'll have passed it'll but have uh yes that's <laughs> still great that to have you over and um yeah definitely please do keep in touch and uh have, a, have a great rest of weekend madeline thank you so much thanks so much okay bye 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 how was that do you enjoy it i hope so if you did please like share and do all that other good stuff that only takes a second on social media but means an awful lot to me as it spreads the reach you can get the details from the show in the show notes on the website robofthegreen.ie in there you can share the show out with others i really just want to touch on three other quick things one feedback i learned so much from it without it i can't improve please give me a bit of feedback positive negative constructive would you recommend a book do you have any other ideas for guests how about more video let me know what you want and i can make it happen i will try that's number one number two sharing is caring this year i'm making more of an effort to try and expand the reach facebook there's a page and there's a group the one percent better community on facebook is where i really hope new listeners go to 
share ideas, comments, in general things that they could help others with. That's what it's there for. Follow me on Spreaker.com. That's the new host. I'm on Twitter, growing not exponentially at all, but slowly. So please follow there. I'm on Instagram. All of these are at Rob of the Green. LinkedIn, Rob O'Donoghue. Get in touch. Would love to hear from you. Number three is about support. So I'm offering a few hours a month pro bono free coaching to those that can't afford it that need some coaching, that want some coaching, if you go to the website, the support page, click on the pro bono link. On the flip side of that, where you guys can support me, go to patreon.com, the Rob of the Green page. You can make a donation there. You can get access to exclusive content, which I'm adding all the time. That would be awesome. Anything you contribute will go back into the show to make it better, make it more than 1% better. Also, there's the option to buy one of those books that were recommended through the website, which will bring you to Amazon, which will get you the normal links, which will get you the books at the normal price. But supposedly, Amazon will give the show a small donation every time a book is purchased or anything for that matter, which is great. So finally, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. I know it's difficult to make improvements, to push things forward, to get outside your comfort zone. I'm trying to do it all the time. I hope that every listen and every show and every guest that is on gives you something to take away that you could apply, adopt and adapt into your own life to create a new habit, to make something better. Don't overreach. Small improvements. 1% is enough. And thank yourself for making the time to listen to the show. It shows you're interested in learning, improving and getting better, even if it's just 1% at a time. Have a great day and good luck.